Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Okay, new game. We've had enough of Alexa. Cool. New game, as yeah, suggested yeah. by... You know, we were talking about Stackwaddy the other week. Um, Stackwaddy. The inimitable and unforgettable Stackwaddy. Stackwaddy. Yes. We were on the Dandelion <laughs> label, and whose first album was called Bugger Off. Yes. Called Bugger Off. Uh, it was called it Bugger was. Off. And... Um, and uh, there was some correspondence from people who, who at first didn't believe that Stackwaddy existed, you know, because if you're not a certain age like you and me, you, you think things like that are just figments of people's imagination. So that gave me an idea. The Stackwaddy game goes as follows. I give you three names of bands, okay? One of them yep. is made up, Okay. The other two really were names of bands, or possibly still are. Yes. Oh right, so two of them. Okay, two of them are real. Two are real, and one two is made real. Oh, okay. One is made up. One was never a name of a band, and you've got to decide. Okay, here's my three: Ham, Pie Wacket, Somp. Ham. Somp is S O M P. No, S U M P. Ham, oh, pie wacket, sump. Ham, pie wacket. Okay, well, look, that's, that's very interesting. They're all pretty much of the same era, I think. You know, pie wacket, I think, exists, actually. I'm sure I've heard of pie wacket. So I'm going to say that they're real. Sump, again, that could. Now, they could have been a kind of early clod-hopping, slightly metallic, heavy rock act from 1971 based in Stevenage. <laughs> or they could alternatively have been, I suppose, a kind of um, 1991 select magazine up-and-coming moose float, you know, ride-type <laughs> group. But I think I'm going to go for some... Ham, I, I'm saying, did not exist. Nobody would call a group Ham. 
Um, it implies insincerity. It implies <laughs> facetiousness. Um, it, it just doesn't really work. Pie whacking. Do you want I'm, to... I'm, I think I've heard of pie whacking, actually, and I'm sure they right. existed. Okay, think, solution. So pie Here's... whack it and sump. Okay, the solution is ham existed and still exist. Okay, they're formed no, in 1988. No, no. They're an Icelandic rock band. Pie whack it. Formed in the late 1970s, playing pop music from the last five centuries. The one that doesn't exist and didn't exist is Stomp. And you're absolutely right, your analysis, that it belonged in the, in the 90s. Kind of shoegazing type group. It's shoegazing. In the, in the, it's shoegazing. In the select, select magazine era. So I win that round. But go on, you're going to have a go You really do win. Well, no, I've, <laughs> I've, uh, I'd scribbled down a couple uh, when you mentioned this a few minutes ago. And I, I, I think I got the brief wrong because only one of these is real. Oh, oh right. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, it's but still see if works. see okay. see if you can see if you can get on. It's the same thing. Yeah. Okay. So the same right, thing. Okay. So the first one is uh, is congratulations on your decision to become a pilot. <laughs> That's the first one. Okay. <laughs> the second one is the way out. And the third one is Mr. Perkins and his pink hat. So those scores again. <laughs> Congratulations on your decision to become a pilot. The way out way and out. Mr. Perkins and his pink hat. And only one's real. Yeah. Mr. Perkins and his pink hat is real. Oh, my Lord. Wow. Did I get it right? I didn't believe it. No, we've both, we've both won. That's extraordinary. No, Mr. Perkins' <laughs> pink hat is not real. Although it's, it's, it's quite like the name of a mate of mine's band uh, in the 1970s. But no, it's not real. And I thought it just sounded absolutely perfect for that kind of period. A, a group based possibly, probably public school boys living in Cheney Walk in Chelsea uh, in, in kind of February 1968. So do you know what I mean? Exactly. Oh, yeah. oh right. Well, maybe. So that yeah. uh, that was my thing. The other one that I I, I thought was I, I put it there. I thought I thought it might be easy to 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 rumble actually because it sounds like one of those groups that should just should have there should have been a group called the Way Out. Don't you think there should have been? Such, yeah, yeah band, that's true. But then why wasn't there a band called the Way Out? But but there wasn't. So that's not true either. No, the real one is congratulations on your decision to become a pilot. Go on. Who formed in 1999 in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and disbanded in 2001, and they were a post-hardcore emo group. But that's a great <laughs> name, isn't it? Post-hardcore emo Do you remember there was a band that Peel used to play all the time? Yeah, Peel used to play all the time called um, the entire crew of the HMS Ark Royal. That's another great name. Wasn't there also best, a group best called band Danger? Name ever. Oh, go on, go on. There wasn't there oh, also a group out called something Dan as a. Dog behind you. Danger Quentin, there's a dog behind you. That's right. That's what right. Danger Quentin, there's a dog behind you. That used to be a, a, a regular Joker smash hits. Yeah, so there you go. So that's a stack waddy game. Stack waddy game, you can play it in, you know, in your parlour while away the long lockdown evenings with your beloved. So let's have Best a game of the stack we used game. To make, we used to make up, that's right, we used to make up names. We had the smash hits readers poll. We just put in people you could vote for, you know, uh, you know Howard Jones, uh, Spanner Ballet, you know Tears for Fears or whatever. And we used to put in. Um, I remember the, the the Flying Savaloy Brothers and Janet. They were always in there. <laughs> they never got any votes. It's good, isn't it? And the Human Saucepans. 
The Orinoco. <coughs> best group name ever, I think. This is a very boring choice, but I still think it's the best. Is Foo Fighters. I think that's an oh, absolutely really? brilliant name. I do, because it's Why? so... It's brilliant. The Foo, Fight, Foo Fighters were, if I remember rightly, part of the, of the Air Force that were that specialised in uh, fighting UFOs. If unidentified oh, right, okay. flying objects ever came into view, they would dispatch the Foo Fighters. So it has a great sense of mystery. And it's, it's brilliant to say, and it looks good written down. It's just a great name, Foo Fighters. A lot of magic. It's good. Worst yeah. name ever, the Beatles. We've been through this before. It, indeed. This is a Word Lockdown special. Call it Herd Immunity. I wanted to talk about... There's a, there's a, a podcast. Uh, it's rare on this podcast we talk about another podcast. This is a podcast which comes out this week, I think, from Spotify. It's sort of an eight-part eight part podcast. Much ballyhooed, called uh, Winds of Change. Have you heard about this? Yes, I have. Yeah, Patrick Radden Keefe is a New York, uh, New York, uh, New Yorker writer, isn't he? I think. And it, if I remember rightly, he'd, he'd done yeah a huge podcast about the idea that that uh, a power ballad by the Scorpions that came out in 1990, yeah, Winds of Change, was in fact written by the CIA. As it was a, written as a by of that kind of somebody yeah, had an told him for this. peaceful revo- revolution to uh, to try and uh, yeah, somebody, accelerate the end of the, the Cold that, War. Yeah, somebody had told him this 10 years earlier or something like this. That, uh, and somebody who was a kind of well-clued-up person, that, you know, this had been written by the CIA and kind of slipped into the kind of the, the European pop bloodstream in order to expedite the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, Patrick Radden Keith is a very, very good writer, very good journalist, wrote a fantastic book about Northern Ireland, if anyone was interested called Say Nothing, which is, I cannot recommend too highly. Uh, and anyway, this uh, this podcast is you know, a bit big. It's a big production. And I, I listened to the, the, the first episode of it just recently. And um, much of this is taken up with him saying to his mate, I find it hard to believe that the CIA would would kind of have a music writing division and would would you know would have somehow would uh, originate a power ballot. You see, now I have to say, I agree with I him. come at I know I come at it with a completely different hat on sure. here. You see, yeah. I find that entirely plausible. I find it completely plausible that somewhere in the CIA. There is some kind of Ricky Gervais in the office type character who's written a power ballad called Winds of Change. I don't have any difficulty with believing that at all because I think every organisation on God's earth at the moment, from a large governmental one to a medium-sized private one, has somebody working in there who harbours fantasies of writing a, a big rock ballad. I, I think that that, that Ricky Gervais in, comparison absolutely free love on the free love yeah, highway free or whatever love on the free love it's highway. It's all the same thing. I don't You're have right. any difficulty with that bit of it at all. This is the bit that I have difficulty with. Coming with my kind of you know close observation of the record business hat on, I think the difficult bit in the whole business is how do you get the Scorpions to do it? Because exactly. The whole business, nothing is more fraught with kind of, uh, nothing is more likely to go wrong than the progress that takes a song onto an album 
onto a single, onto an A-side, then onto a hit. You know what I mean? The, the, if, you, if you sat there in the CIA and said, oh, I tell you what, Chief, I've got an idea of how to bring down the, you know, the Berlin Wall. This is what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to write a song called Winds Have Changed. We're going to get it to Scorpions. You're going to get it to who? We're going to get it to Scorpion. Okay. We're going to persuade them somehow, either with their collusion or without it, to put it on their album. And then they're going to put it out as a single, and it's going to be a huge hit. I would say, if I was their boss, you've as much chance of scoring <laughs> a hat-trick in a World Cup <laughs> final as you have of bringing off that series of events. Because... Nothing goes what wrong. What if they were to offer them often. huge amounts of money? No, true. But what if they were to offer them huge amounts of money? All right. Well, if they did, I, I think it's rather unlikely because I, I don't think it's easy to bribe rock bands. You know, I don't think you find the right person to bribe. You know, the, the power in rock bands is so kind of all over the place. You can't get them in a room and say... And there's so many people what. involved in the decision as well, isn't Absolutely, it? so there's the so publisher. There's, there's always going to be somebody, exactly, yeah. And, and even if you've done it, then the difficult bit is getting them to keep quiet about it. Because, you know, yeah. we all know... There are stories, a legion in the music business about, oh, you know, so-and-so is supposed to have written that. Well, actually, it was secretly written by... Joe over yeah, here. Take you that know. and the Bee Gees. And, yeah, 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 who, yeah. Who doesn't like to talk about it, you know. Well, in the end, they always talk. Always, always, always talk. You know, the idea that they would keep this secret just seems to me far-fetched. Now, you know, it's a really good podcast, and I, I, I recommend people listening to it, and maybe they've got copper-bottom proof by the end of it that this is what happened. But... I would say it's a pretty damn long shot, you know. It's a very thin and flaky proposition, isn't it, don't you think, for a well, several series podcast? Also, why is it taking so long for it to come out? Because the record came out in 1990. Indeed, the Cold War, of course, did end in 1991, though. I remember. Oh, no, yeah, <laughs> by coincidence. Brought down, brought, brought down by this record, yeah. Brought down by this record. Yeah. But anyway, I was thinking about this, this whole business, uh, uh, kind of what a lottery it is. You know, the, how certain records get to be hits and other ones don't. And I was also, we were talking about this, uh, the sad death of Alan Merrill, um, you know. Who yeah, that's died an amazing in, story. In the, in the United States a few weeks ago. And I have to confess, I didn't really know much about this guy. But his claim to fame, and the, the reason he's got an obituary in the New York Times, is he was one of the, one of the people who wrote I Love Rock and Roll. So, you know, if anybody needs reminding how I love rock and roll goes, there is. And that is the Arrows version, isn't it? The group he was in. That's the Arrows that version. Right? He, so he's an, Amer he's an American. It's an extraordinary tale. He's an American. Yeah, amazing talk. He He kind of... He, I think he tries to get into the left bank in the 1960s, the left bank being the kind he of did. Michael Brown. He auditioned Brown, for the left bank. Yeah, the Michael Brown led group who had Walk Away Room, Renee. And, and then he went to Japan and he became a, a kind of a star, didn't he? Singing Japanese yeah, bubble gum pop language, yeah. bubblegum pop songs. 
And then he ended up in England in the mid-70s, and he was a member of the Arrows. And the Arrows were a kind of would-be Bay City Rollers type act who... uh, who who had a TV series on Granada, short-lived TV series, round about the time, you know, Granada used to do all these kind of tea time things, round about the time they did a Mark Boland series, didn't they? Muriel Young used to produce all these kind of things for Granada. And anyway, uh, he wrote, he and another member wrote I Love Rock and Roll. And the amazing thing is they wrote it and they put it on the B-side, the B-side... Of this. Isn't that astonishing? Yeah. Here's the tune that they thought was better. It's astonishing. And Joan Jett was over touring, wasn't she, and heard it? Is that right? What was the story? How did she run into it? So that's the tune that they thought was better, which you can't believe anybody ever thought that was better than I Love Rock and Roll. She she happened to be touring Britain with the Runaways, and she happened to catch the TV program that they played "I Love Rock and Roll" on, and she thought, quite sensibly, that's a huge hit record. You know, it is. You know, the Arrows hadn't thought it, the TV producer hadn't thought it, the record business, the record company hadn't thought it, but she sat there in a hotel room and thought, "My God, that's a hit," and so. When she left the Runaways, went out on her own, pretty much the first thing they did was they covered I Love Rock and Roll. And she had her entire career is based on I based Love on Rock and Roll. Song. Just based on that. So, you know, if the CIA, you know, if the CIA want to know how you get a hit, a song to be a hit, you know, it's those, it's that kind of succession of mad coincidences is what, more often than not, makes those things happen, rather than conspiracies. People people have always got conspiracy theories about a record business. In my experience, the record business cannot coordinate anything, let alone a conspiracy. You know, the idea that they can all get in a room and say, this is what we're going to do, it doesn't happen, does it? At all. No, the majority of of pop music is happy accidents, I think. Just extraordinary coincidences. But things just run and into then, each other and, you know... And then that, you know, that, that then reminded us of the, uh, you know, the, the, the number of times that huge hit records have started live on the B-side were never intended. You know, the, the classic we case... We Are The Champions? Right, I was, was that one of them? We Are The Champions? I think, so. I I think We Are The Champions was the B-side of We Will Rock You, I think. The various ones, Revolution, and, I think, was a B-side, but... The Beatles, wasn't it? Well, that was kind of double A side, wasn't it? The double A side, the model by Kraftwerk. I can't remember if that was double A side, but I I think it's the B side of Computer Love. And also, that you can't you can't always get what you want by the Stones was, I think, the B side of Honky Tonk Women. So, I mean, yes, it was became huge, huge records, didn't they? Go on, which one? The classic, well, the classic one I always think is Maggie May, Rod Stewart, wasn't even supposed to be on the album. Because they didn't the think it was right. good enough, not even on the <laughs> album, and so they put it. <laughs> they didn't think it was good enough. And they put it on the B side of um, "Reason to Believe" uh, was the A side, and it was only when a DJ in Cleveland flipped it and said, "No, that's the hit," that they started working Maggie May, and Rod Stewart's entire career has been built on that. 
that song. I know, it's you know, extraordinary. <laughs> completely by an so accident. Just so. weird little twists of synchronicity. I know. And that's the same with Alan Merrill. I mean, Alan Merrill must have presumably, it must have bankrolled the rest of his life, must not it? Because that's a massive... Oh, sure, absolutely. Still gets played. Absolutely. She gets played all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was still, he, you know, he was still playing in New York, you know, up until his, you know, sad death recently, as a, you know, as a victim of the coronavirus. But uh, which is the only reason that that kind of came to my attention. But I thought it was interesting at the at the same time as the winds of change uh, conspiracy theories. You know, do you believe it in is, conspiracies, or do you believe in mad coincidences? I tend to believe in mad coincidences. This is a lockdown special from the Word. You ain't going nowhere. So I was reading this piece in uh, uh, online from a, about a, a gig that's happening in Arkansas uh, on Friday. Today, today's um, uh, the fourteenth, and it's happening tomorrow, the fifteenth of May. And it gives you an idea of what life is going to be like on the live circuit, or certainly what it's like at the moment. Bravely, they're going ahead with Travis McCready's country, uh, his country star, his gig, and it's a venue that they can, they can only sell two hundred and twenty nine seats out of 1,100, so you can imagine how, how, you know, empty it already feels. Everybody going compulsorily has to wear masks, um, so that cuts down, you know, conversation and human interaction already. Um, if you haven't got a mask, you can buy one there. They're for sale in the venue. You're, you're divided a little pot of 12, uh, they're called fan pods, which I think presumably have perspex sheets in between them. But, but uh, you know, but up to 12 people can sit in a designated area. Your temperature is taken on the way in and your temperature is taken on the way out. You can't touch the paper towels or the soap dispensers. Only 10 allowed in the toilet at any one time. Any food or drink bought is, is kind of already prepared for sandwiches and wrappers, you know. And it just made me think, would you, is there any concert at all that you'd be prepared to go through that kind of privation and restriction for the privilege of paying $20 plus fees to go and enjoy it. I can't imagine there would be. Would I, can, I can't imagine it. Experience. Now, well, when, you were, when you were first describing it, I thought to myself, doesn't that mean that the, the people who go are all separated from each other? But you've, you've said that they can be in groups of... I think 11, did you say? But no, within so those you... groups, they've got to be separated. No, within oh, those really? pods, those so you... areas, they've got to be separated. They've got to be distanced from each other. So, so the, the only way this is going to work, the only way this is going to work is it will appeal to those uh, acts whose fan base is made up of, of complete loners. You know, and you must have cases of this. There must be cases where you think to yourself, Do you know, I want to go and see so-and-so, but clearly my wife will not be will not be paid to go and see them with me, you know. And I haven't got a mate who likes them also. You kind of quite like to go on your own. There must be a seam of acts who just appeal to absolute misfits. You know what I mean? For, for whom the act of going to see them is not in any way social. Yes? Does that make any sense? That's I can't true. immediately think true. who that would be. I don't know. I can um, think of one off the top of my head. There was a group there was a group in about nineteen eighty called the Young Marble Giants. Remember <laughs> them? There was a woman I think called Alison Statton. And they were a yes. kind of they were a kind of ambient pop act who were the most kind of bed sit group imaginable. <laughs> 
and very kind of uh, very very uh, very uh, dislocated looking um, you know librarian types with big glasses and uh, baggy sweaters would sit on their own and uh, and listen to them patiently. Um, there was no sense of uh, of. Uh, Social bonding or uh, or camaraderie. <laughs> Nobody, nobody's on their feet, leaping around, punching the air, and screaming. You know, it makes so me, it makes me think. Bring it, back Nico. It makes no. me Nico. Yeah. It made me think of Nico. You know, because there's something about Nico. You can't imagine. Well, sadly, no longer with us. But you know, even when she was, you can't imagine the idea of going to see Nico, and and at the end of a number, turning to the person next to you, go, "This is good, isn't it?" <laughs> <You> <laughs> I know, know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love yeah, we that. We ought to go and have a drink sometime. I know, I know. <laughs> Fantastic. There must so be. maybe that's no, it. Those are the people. There's a whole new wave of, uh, <laughs> of Joanna Newsom type, you know, of uh, ambient, Joanna uh, Newsom. Harp players. Joanna yeah, Newsom. Yeah, yeah. That's the kind There's of thing, one. you know. But it's not, not the kind of... they. You can't see an immediate future for those acts that kind of... Encourage people to bond with each other, can you? You know what I mean? In which no, there's the a brilliant of... piece which you sent me of, of Dave Grohl, and I, th- I think it was I read it in the Atlantic, uh, which you'd sent me, which was fantastic. Dave Grohl talked about how much he misses the idea of huge audiences playing. He described Freddie Mercury at Live Aid as playing 72,000 people as his instrument and joining them in harmonious union. It was really good. And Bruce Springsteen, the quote from Bruce Springsteen, said, When you look at an audience, you see yourself in them just as they see themselves in you, you know. And he says, you know, will there ever be a return to that, you know, that singing arm in arm at the top of your lungs, hearts racing, bodies moving, souls bursting with life. I mean, that's what, that, you take the audience element away from a rock and roll band, like, like football, f- football game, and what have you got? That's it's what it's all about. Isn't you've, it? got so you've, got. you've got to recycle is what you've got. You've got to recycle. It's... Um... You know, it, it will... I mean, probably people will have to just, you know, move away from that kind of performance because, you know, the, he talks about the Freddie Mercury, you know, case, and that's a perfectly fair point. And um, But that way of performing only emerged as a consequence of playing in front of huge audiences in stadiums. And previously, yeah, it hadn't great, been done. It, yeah. it had not been done. You know, you know. I think I think Bruce Springsteen only played. So when are we talk about live? We're talking eighty-five, aren't we? Um, Bruce Springsteen had only played outdoors for the first time that yeah. summer on tour at Slane Castle in in Ireland. And they did that thing that American acts classically do, which is, if we're going to try something and it might go wrong, let's do it in Europe. We're not doing it at home, where our own homegrown media will be, will be watching That's to true. judge if we're... Let's do it far from home. Let's, let's do it hope the news never, never leaks back to them that we've fucked up royally. That's and the, right. the story, he tells the story, doesn't he, in his, in his autobiography, Bruce Springsteen, yeah. about uh, how at half-time he was... He broke a load of things in the dressing room. He was so furious uh, as to how frustrating it was to try and, you know, link up with an audience who were all over the place and, you know, looking at the sky and distracting and all kinds of things. And Landau, his manager, said, well, this is what you're going to have to do. And that's what everybody did. But they only did it because they were playing in front of 80,000 people. 
And they did 80,000 yeah. people because they wanted to make enough money to pay for the tour. Well, you know, the big scale things, it seems to me, are not coming back in a hurry. <laughs> it's going so to go to smaller smaller things. Yeah, if you were the Stones or you were McCartney or you were the Who or whatever, would you, if you went back on the live circuit, whenever you're allowed to do that, let's say it's next year, can it be anything other than a, a reduced version of what you were before? You know, is it possible to imagine that the same number of people would turn out and see you? I find that hard to believe. So therefore, think, would you uh, want uh, to continue? Well, I think two things. I wonder if the Rolling Stones have retired now. This is it. It's possible, isn't it? Because, yeah. because yeah, yeah. you know, they, they must have thought about it for years now. I mean, they're not going to announce it or anything like that, but have they yeah. have they done their last show? Does the same thing apply to The Who? Does the same thing apply to Paul McCartney and people like that? Bob Dylan's just called off his, his tour, hasn't he? I think, I think he was supposed to be yeah. touring the United States in summer. He's clearly not going to do that. Well, he must be feeling discombobulated seeing as he's been touring since, you know, the late 18th century. <laughs> he really what the hell? Life. That's a good what one. What is he doing? What yeah, is Bob Dylan not... doing all day? Oh, God, I hadn't thought of that. Because Bob Dylan lives in a tour bus. He lives for that routine of being... And you can understand how attractive it would be. If you're rootling around at home thinking, what am I, what am I going to do with myself? Uh, compare that to being the centre of attention the entire time, somebody putting you on a tour bus, taking you somewhere, sound check, hotel, gig, making a fuss of you, never having to do anything at all apart from for two, and a, two hours every night, turn up and play versions of uh, Maggie's Farm that nobody recognises. That's a nice life, isn't it? <laughs> be good. So He's what is he touring. doing? He's mooching about doing oh, his welding. God. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, I welding. think what okay, but, but I think what will happen eventually, they'll think, well, Bob, Bob can't go out. Let's bring fans in in small numbers to Bob's house, and Bob can do what he does in front of them. And they'll pay $20,000 a person That's or it. something like that That's it. to be invited yeah, yeah. round to Bob's. And, and Bob's going to play off his back porch. Yep. You'll be at a safe distance and you'll get a bit of an exclusive uh, experience. I think, and I'm making this up as I go along, you might get more exclusive experiences. You might get, I think you might ask more from performers than just doing your set. You might get more Q&As. For the people who prepared you might to get pay a lot more for it. People yeah. who prepared, prepared to pay a lot of money. And there will be people who are prepared to pay a lot of money. Um, and you'd so like maybe to that feel... Bruce Springsteen on Broadway model, business model, is the new way forward. Because those were quite, quite, I mean, relatively intimate gigs, weren't they, for which people paid, I don't know, 15 hundred dollars or something. something absolutely well, they paid a lot, so but they... Except those were very, very kind of prescribed. They were very scripted, you know, those those kind of the recitals of a very particular kind of narrative. Whereas I wonder if you might see a bit more. Because if you pay $20,000, if you want a request, you get a request, I would have thought. Wouldn't you? Yeah. You've got to hope so. If you, <laughs> if you say, I want to hear only a pawn in the game, you're going to get only born in the game. It might change the relationship, you know. I mean, God knows it's very incredibly difficult times for musicians, you know, 
very, very uncertain. Did you read that lovely levels. thing that Dylan said about Little Richard? It was great. It was so sweet. He said, he said something like, in his presence, he was always the same Little Richard that I first heard and was awed by growing up, and I was always the same little boy. That's a really nice thing to say, isn't it? Because he met Little yeah. Richard quite a few times, and immediately he went back to being... You know how old would, he, would Dylan have been? He would have been 14, I suppose, when, yeah, when Little Richard had, had his first hit. Fantastic. I th- I'm, surprised well, he, was, I'm surprised it wasn't more about Little Richard's death, actually, um, which I don't think we've talked about in the podcast yet. I mean, I, I, obviously there's other things to write about, and that squeezed all this kind of stuff out of the frame. But, my God, I was reminded of a thing that David Kirby... David Kirby wrote a book called uh, Little Richard, The Birth of Rock and Roll. And he had this wonderful quote about Tutti Frutti. He said, uh, according to Tutti Frutti, was, it's, like, it's like the skinniest part of the hourglass. Everything that, that came before flows into this narrow pass, and the world we live in today flows out the other side. Well, that's an amazing thing to say. And it's sort of true, isn't it? All those kind of revolutions about race and sex and age and class and everything pretty much start with that record, don't they? You know, you said in your terrific um, Uncommon People book, you know, that's the first rock and roll star. You know, that's 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 the beginning. He's the guy who galvanises Lennon and McCartney and the Stones and Dylan and Elton John and everyone. And it's just, I mean, it, his level of achievement is astonishing, don't you think? And because when Bob, when Bob Dylan left school and, um, you know, his final high school yearbook, they said, what's your ambition? He had to say ambition. And he said, oh, yeah. to, join, That's right. to join Little Richard. <laughs> as if, as if Little it. Richard was running a kind of army somewhere and he was going to go off and join it. You know what I mean? As if it was some kind of religious movement that you could sign up to, to join Little Richard. So you know, that's it's, right. Um, like 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 it's a cult. A, it's a remark. It's a remarkable and unique legacy. You're listening to the Word Podcast. It's a lockdown lock-in. Okay, yesterday's papers. What you got? Well, I had a dig around in the roof, and I found a fantastic old copy of Zigzag. Uh, and it, you can t- see, you can probably date it, Dave. Actually, if I tell you that the groups that they write about are Lena Lovitch, the Scars. Nina Hagen, Telephone, The Nips, Punny Lux, formerly Punishment of Luxury, Doll by Doll, The Lurkers. There's a great Lurkers piece uh, with a headline. The headline just says, the headline is, what have the Lurkers been up to? That's good, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and, and the cover story is the... <laughs> don't dress it up anymore, you need to. And the cover story is the slits. Take the cake. And the slits have been, uh, been baked to cake by... Um, Chris needs the editor, I think, or somebody. So I'm going to uh, say 1978. Well, yeah, that's pretty much it. It's actually April 79. But, I mean, it's funny how you can just... just, You're entering a little time capsule, aren't you? There's no none of that kind of small ads and kind of uh, popular culture stuff in in ZigZag. It's just a, a collection of groups that they all think are hip. And it's great, yeah. And there's, well, this and there's is a, when Chris Needs had taken over, Chris wasn't it? Chris Needs is on the front. Where's the singles? There's a single, this is how the singles reviews go. We've got the pop groups, She Is Beyond Good and Evil. What a great record, actually. And it just says, Nietzschean title confounds, but this is contemporary music. The pop group take themselves seriously. Do you? And that's the, that's the, <laughs> that's the review. <laughs> Amazing. I'm looking at a copy of the New Musical Express, from the 25th of May, 1968. And uh, and the singles in this particular issue were uh, reviewed by Derek Johnson 
And the headline over the single of the week is Earthy Stones Must Have a Gigantic Hit. And I wonder if you can identify the gigantic hit from the review. Well, this is the one you've been waiting for, folks. And I guarantee you won't be disappointed because it's vintage Rolling Stones. All the familiar ingredients are there. Urgent beat, juddering twangs, wailing harmonica, maracas, and Mick indulging in his mind-bending vocal pyrotechnics. What hit record do you think he's talking about there, Mark? Um, 2000 Light Years From Home. Jumping Jack... No, not Jumping Jack. Um, yes, it is. It's Jumping Jack Flash. It's Jumping Jack Flash. It's Jumping Jack Flash. Even though I'm not sure it's got a wailing harmonica on it. I but don't then, think it has. I, I don't think That's quibbling. Do you know what Jerry struck Johnson's me as interesting? What, what struck me as interesting here is that is the, she's using the expression, it's vintage Rolling Stones in 1968. Yes? This is... How That's long amazing, have they been it? going? You know what I mean? They've been going yeah, about yeah, four, yeah. And a, four and a bit years or something like that. And, and also the Derek... And already, already people really were saying... change very much. But this is it. Already people saying they're back to their best. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're back to what they yeah. do best. And that was... Jumper Jack Flash was... It didn't sound like anything they'd done before, really. It was kind of... It's heavier. It's very different sound, wasn't it? It wasn't that kind of transistor was, radio sound of of satisfaction or or we loved you or anything like that. It was a very different, very American sound, wasn't it? And it's interesting it they talk about the vintage Rolling Stones. Let's get back nineteen sixty eight. You know, it always has the review that they've had ever since, isn't it? You know, they've had ever since. Stone sound. Yeah, <laughs> this is, it sounds like Exile on Main Street. They're back. This is it. Brilliant. They're they're back. They all say that. The truth is that nobody wants them to change. You know, and if (laughs) if they don't change, they lambast them for that too. But they yeah yeah yeah. Don't we all like the idea of the Rolling Stones in the past? Don't we? You know, it's it's just what what they've had to what they've had to live with. So and also in this issue, it's got a track by track uh, where the small faces go through their new album with their new circular album. Small Faces Storm Brain LP in Round Sleeve. And it's them going through track by track of Ogden's Not Gone Flake. It's absolutely fantastic. What do they say about Stanley Unwin? So here's Keith Oltham writing about Stanley Unwin. Uh, Professor Unwin's voice is first heard inquiring if we're all sitting comfortably, comfy bowl, two square on your bodies (laughs) before happiness Stan crashes about our ears. Stan lives in the land of greens and coloured dreams, deep inside a rainbow. His big problem is that he cannot understand the mysteries on the other side of the moon. And this Steve sings to the thrashing accompaniment of piano, organ, drums and harpsichord. It's that kind of thing. No mention of drugs anywhere near it at all. You know, no. It's just a, it's a, kind of, it's a children's story. It's a, it's a beautiful period piece. It's fantastic to read these things, and uh, you know, because that's that's how this stuff was regarded at the time. You know, there was none of the kind of none of the hindsight that we bring to it now. You know, they just and saw those it reviews in the are often yeah, and those reviews were often written probably in the office after about one quick hearing, almost as a news piece, uh, weren't they? 
You know, they oh, weren't, yeah, they weren't very the kind of let's go home and live with this album for weeks and really kind of <laughs> immune with it and allow, allow yeah. our lives to be changed. It's very much kind of, well, there's, the organ is quite high on this one. There's some very perky bass playing and, uh, and the, <laughs> the, you know, the, the drummer is no slouch. It's all that kind of thing, isn't it? You know, and, uh, I've just noticed uh, the first, one of the first pieces in this issue is, is uh, about Gary Puckett and the Union Gap. And, uh, and the headline is Californian Union Gap Spurn the Psychedelic. Was psychedelic spelt wrong? And two S's right. in it. Psychedelic. It's obviously, it, was, it was obviously just quite early on in the... the you know, the people had learned how to spell with psychedelic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a completely new name, you know, whereas nowadays people could, people could type it without looking at it at all, you know. It wasn't the case yeah. in those days. You're listening to The Word Podcast, where the time is whenever you want it to be. I'm just finishing that Craig Brown uh, Beatles book, One, Two, Three, Four, and I'm reminded of a couple of stories I'd forgotten. One is that McCartney, do you remember this, in autumn 1966 when they just played Candle, Candlestick Park? And for the first time in years, they've got time off and the Beatles got three months off before they start recording what becomes Sgt Pepper in November. And he went on his own. This is astonishing when you think about it. He went on his own to Paris... Um, and took with him a wig and a false moustache, glasses and a hat, so he could go back to his previous anonymous life and see what it was like. He spent two or three days quite happily going around in disguise uh, with, his, with his new little um, his, uh, with his new uh, handheld movie camera. And then tries to get into a club, and they won't let him in. So he goes back to the hotel, takes his disguise off, and goes back as Paul McCartney. Of course, they're all over. <laughs> you know. And he just remembers. He says, "I remember what it was. It was like." I remember what it was like not to be famous, and it wasn't necessarily any better than being famous. It was rather sweet, really. It's an amazing story, though, that McCartney walking around Paris at that time, one of the most famous people in the world, in disguise. And there's the, other, the, the, there's other the, famous, the famous story about it take, around about the same time when Elvis Presley was doing his comeback special in oh, Hollywood. Yeah. Steve, is it Steve Binder, Binder, however pronounce it, was produced it. And he said to him, why don't you just go out in the street? And he said, I can't do that. I can't do that. I'll get mobbed. It'll be hopeless. So he said, no, just come outside. We'll try it. So he went and stood outside on Hollywood Boulevard or wherever they were. And nobody noticed him at all. <laughs> and so they went back in, went back indoors. Elvis, not best, please. <laughs> no, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. There's another great uh, chapter. Do you remember the story of Detective Sergeant Nobby Pilcher, who busts oh, yeah. the Beatles and various other people? Yeah. I just forgot how amazing it is that everybody who came into the Beatles' orbit is so affected by them. And he's a weird combination of somebody who is... He's utterly in awe of them. And he also he also kind of envies their fame. And so he sets out on a series of major busts. They describe as a police groupie, as an autograph hunter with handcuffs. And he busts Donovan and then Mick Jagger and then Keith Richards at Redlands, that thing, you know, and then John and Yoko at Montague Square and eventually George and Patty. And his sister, his, the way he does it is to ring up the press beforehand and tip them off so that the press are covering these drug raids so he gets the ma- most amount of coverage. But, of course, the press were actually kind of in touch with the Beatles and would ring the Beatles and say that the, the drugs squad are on their way, at which point they would get rid of the stuff. And he took, therefore took the precaution of taking drugs with him, which he planted on the press. Uh-huh. And um, and they always complained about it and said, look, we don't have any of this stuff. And this guy's going to put bags of heroin in our in our front rooms. You know, we don't take it, etc., etc. And then uh, and and occasionally asked them for autographs and was completely spellbound in their presence. You know, and asked them about the new music and how the new albums were coming on. It's amazing. 
And then in the end, was arrested I, for perjury and perverting the course of justice and sentenced to four years. So there's a bit of... There's a, there, there's the, he got his just desserts. My, my, my favourite element of that story is his name. He was called Pilcher. Pilcher. Bobby Pilcher. Is, is like a name out of a Joe Orton play, isn't it? You know, if you it is. If you're going to do it, a CD detective, was going to call, be called Mister Pilcher, wasn't he? It was he was, he was goes the knacker of the yard, absolutely. <laughs> but he became immortalised as a giant hedgehog in called Spiny Norman in Monty and the Monty oh, yeah, 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 and also he turns up in the Ruttles as the Ruttles character called Detective Inspector Brian Plant, who plants Indian tea and biscuits on members <laughs> of the Ruttles. And then arrests them. <laughs> it's great, <laughs> extraordinary though. The effect that that, that I know isn't that great. Do you know what I've been thinking about Probably. from the past in the in these days? Um, it's it's round about fifty. It's fifty one years ago this week. This <laughs> sounds like ancient history, but I do remember it happening. And since tragically, uh, the car the van crash happened. Which killed Fairport Convention drummer Martin Lambert. Oh yeah, Martin Lambert. And yeah. uh, and Richard Thompson's girlfriend Jeannie Franklin, and uh, which is obviously just an awful, awful thing. And um, but the, the the amazing thing it makes you reflect upon, if you, and this is nineteen sixty nine. In the year nineteen sixty nine, Fairport Convention released. What we did on our holidays in January, I think I'm right saying, and then recorded and released unhalf bricking in the spring, I don't know, May, something like that. Then the crash happened. They were coming back from Mothers, I think, in Birmingham. They played Mothers in Birmingham. This terrible crash happened. And, and they subsequently kind of withdrew to a house in the country to sort themselves out and learn some different songs and they got a new drummer, obviously, um, Dave Mattox and so forth. And so they recorded and released Legion Leaf in the same calendar year. In the same year? In so they put out three, three absolutely they phenomenal albums. Three extraordinary records. With obviously slightly different lineups, and you know, because Swarbrick kind of joined them during Unhalf Breaking, or you know, played on Sailor's Life and so forth. But I, I just don't think it's just absolutely amazing, you know, they went through that terrible trauma, which must haunt them to this day. Just terrible. Van turned up, and also, and oh, it's that's incredible. Just and also kind of finished, kind of. Finalising the kind of the, 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 the sound they were going to make, the group they were going to be, which is very based on, on listening to a band album, wasn't it? Didn't they listen to the band's second album and think we're going to go back to the kind of um, well know, traditional yeah, English and also music they, the way well, that they, the they band heard, had gone back? They heard the yeah, the, yeah, the traditional yeah, English songs as well, you know. So they did. I mean, all those three records—they're all very different kinds of music, really. All really good records in, yeah. in, their, in yeah. their in their different ways. But it's just the fact. Of doing the three of them and releasing the three of them—it's astonishing in that Absolutely year. Just yeah. <laughs> you tell that to the bands of today, and they won't believe you. <laughs> the Word Podcast. What's wrong with being sexy? Hope you're managing to keep up with our other activities during this um, time of inf- 
forced seclusion. I hope yeah, I hope you people have uh, listened, have uh, caught up with the word in the attic. What are we calling them, Mark? We, we can't call them video cast, cast. They're not really that, are they? They're video chats with people that are on our on YouTube under under word in video your ear. You'll sounds find a bit them. formal, doesn't it? Yeah, they're just basically people who've been rooting around the attic and found a few old records and things. And, uh, you know, scrapbooks and f- posters and pictures and stuff from their youth. It's brilliant, actually. God, we've done loads. So we've had, we've had, who have we had recently? We've had Claire Grogan, Claire Grogan. we've had Leslie, Leslie Ann Jones, we had Peter Curran, we had um, Miles, Miles Hunt. Hunt. Uh, going further back, I can't think, we, we've had uh, Barney Hoskins. Uh, we've had all sorts of people. We continue Lewis, recording them. Mark, yeah, Mark Lewison's there, uh, Jim Irvin. And uh, you know they're all there for you to um, to enjoy, and you know? and and you know people appear to enjoy them, which is very very gratifying uh, to to hear that they're doing that. And so, if you feel like being one of our Patreon supporters, you you'll also you help all this happen, but you also get access to our rather exciting Saturday Tea Time quiz. Which is entering its third week, <laughs> which is going swimmingly. It's going swimmingly well, actually. It where is, we invite really, everybody really via a Zoom link to take part in a quiz, where they have to they have to guess according to a number of cryptic clues which musical performer we're talking about. And also, so Patreon subscribers get access to that. We've also introduced a, a level where people can can get access to the podcast. Slightly earlier than everybody else, so you'll be able to find details of that uh, under our Patreon page, which will be under this podcast, uh, uh, along with the programme billing. You'll be able to find that there. So, Mark, I think you can tell us who well, are the people new, we're new happiest we... to welcome as our new Patreon supporters. Over to yeah, you, Mark. Yeah, we should mention them. Uh, it's so, so nice and so, so immensely generous of our new Our new patrons include the incorrigible Ian Martin. And the peerless Good Andy Ian. Hamilton. Yeah. Excellent, Andy. And the immaculate Simon's Slatehome. And the philanthropic Sean Campbell. And Very the good. magnificent Jonathan Holden. And the uh, inimitable Simon Slater. We've had him already. Simon Slater must have presumably subscribed twice. He's paid twice. Uh, what an excellent chat. He's paid chat. twice. Yeah, the sensational <laughs> Steve Jones. And uh, the radiant Frank Inzani. And the impossibly generous Kieran Brennan. So thanks so much for all of that. Thank you very much to all of them. Really appreciate it. It's fantastic. Brilliant. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. (laughs) 